Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a weekly mess of crypto buzzwords, finance follies, and big ideas. We're your hosts, Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, and we'll examine the fascinating, bizarre, buzzworthy, and downright cringeworthy world of crypto. Love it, hate it, we don't mind either way. We're just here to grind some gears. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. One of the key innovations of Bitcoin is that it solves something called the double spend problem. This means that every Bitcoin is provably scarce. It can't exist in two people's wallets at the same time. This is actually a really big deal because it's pretty hard to make sure digital files don't get reproduced and propagated. Just think about what Napster and LimeWire did with digital music files, or what Pirate Bay and Popcorn Time did with movies. But just because cryptocurrency can't be double-spent on a technical level doesn't mean it can't be leveraged, used to create loans. In fact, many products in the space are now aiming to do exactly that. From Meltem Demirers and Jill Carlson, this is what grinds my gears, weekly analysis of the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. As you might have guessed from Jill's introduction, this week we're going to be discussing credit. Credit! Jill, how much do you love credit? I love credit. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fascinating topic. We both happen to be two individuals who have worked in the credit market in various ways. Um, I myself worked a lot on credit scoring and credit risk at a corporate level. Jill, do you want to talk briefly about how you were in the credit market? And I used to trade sovereign debt at Goldman Sachs. So I was trading Latin American sovereigns, uh, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, and Venezuela. So for those of you listening who listened to that and said, huh, let's dive briefly into credit at a high, high level, and hopefully it'll provide a helpful basis for the conversation we're going to have. So credit, when we use that word, really what we're describing is the lending of capital from someone who has money and is willing to take risk with it to someone who lacks money and is willing to pay for access to that money. Credit is a fairly simple concept, and credit markets were really a result of the mismatch of cash flows and the need to expand economic activity while lacking the resources to do so. So here's what's what's happening when credit transactions take place. There's a borrower. Let's say I, Meltem, want to build a business. I want to build a technology business, but I don't have enough money to expand my business by hiring more developers. I do, however, have some cash flows. So I, as a borrower, put together my financials and I say, hey, I'd like to borrow against my future income and my earnings for premium, and I'm willing to pay someone to be able to borrow that money. So Jill, do you want to do you want to lend me some money? Yeah, and let's say I'm someone who has some spare cash lying around and I have an appetite for risk. I happen to know Meltem, I happen to know the market that she is planning to enter with this new company of hers, and I say, "Hey, yeah, I'm I'm willing to loan you some money, but not for free. Nothing in life is free, right? So I'm going to ask you to pay me back a premium on that money that I am lending you up front." So the way the premium gets decided, it's important to note, is based on the other types of return that are available in the market. So if you look at the market today, what's interesting is very low risk forms of investing, like treasuries, 
are returning really low rates. In some cases, they're 1%. There are places in the world where returns are actually 0%, meaning there's very little return investors get for low-risk opportunities. So what's interesting to note is credit markets tend to expand in times when interest rates are low because there are more people looking for return, and they tend to contract in environments where interest rates are rising. That's right. And so something that we're getting at here is that lending and borrowing takes place on all different kinds of levels, from the individual level, consumer credit. So this is individuals taking out loans on credit cards uh, to buy cars, to buy houses, to pay for medical bills, to pay for student loans. Companies take out corporate credit. So in the case of what Melton was describing earlier, where she's trying to start a business, this would be an example of that. And then there's sovereign credit, which I mentioned earlier, I used to trade which is governments and state actors taking out loans for themselves. And of course, as you would expect, state actors that tend to be very stable and well-capitalized and have, have taxation as a form of revenue tend to trade, not always, but tend to trade with very low premiums on them. So they're less risky. Whereas consumer credit, where there's more uncertainty around an individual, tend to trade with higher premiums. So for this episode, what I think will be really interesting is not to focus on all three types of credit, but to delve in on consumer credit because it's the easiest to understand and it's a really big business. I will say for future episodes, I will want to talk about corporate credit, particularly the bond issuance market. Um, So corporates issuing bonds that can be redeemed or converted into shares and the implications of that for the way that networks raise money and also sovereign credit and the way that different entities and nation states, perhaps in the future, even blockchain networks might borrow against future earning potential, their economies, the strength of their military, or their ability to issue issue more tokens and what that might look like. But for the purposes of today, because we only have a set amount of time, although Jill, you and I could probably riff on this for a good few hours. (laughs) So let's go right into consumer credit. So consumer credit is a huge business, certainly enough for one episode for us to cover here today. Uh, It's roughly $4 trillion outstanding in consumer debt at the moment in the United States alone, which to put that in perspective, the US GDP is about 20 trillion. So 20% the US GDP is outstanding as consumer debt. That's right. That's insane. Which is a a pretty pretty staggering, breathtaking number to to consider. And you know, a lot of the innovation that we've seen around fintech over the last several years, this is something you've pointed out to me as well, has been in the area of consumer credit. And now we see cryptocurrency projects getting into the game. Uh, So now making gains off of other people's leverage isn't just for bankers anymore. It's for technologists too. (laughs) Uh, So, But let's talk about quickly, I actually want to go back to some of the history of consumer credit, because I think it's interesting. And it's really relevant to the conversation we're going to get into, which is, what are the reasons that people take out loans? So some of the ones you mentioned, sometimes people need to pay medical bills, sometimes they go to school. Um, I know student loans are a huge market. Maybe it's to buy a car, maybe it's to buy a house. And in the case of cryptocurrency, we're seeing different kinds of leverage being utilized to get exposure to assets or asset classes in different ways. But credit is not a new concept. And in fact, 
credit has been around since the dawn of human civilization. Um, I remember a few years ago, Jill, there was this amazing Egyptian exhibit at the Met. It was an Egyptian history exhibit, and they brought in the mummies, which are always fun. (laughs) They brought in um, a lot of the art and the artifacts and the sculptures. One of the things that was also in this great exhibit was a mural um, from back in, you know, I want to say 2000 years BC. And it was a mural of someone sitting at a board of sorts with colored strings. And apparently the Egyptians used to use this system with strings and knots where they'd actually track how much grain or how much um, produce or how much, you know, product people had delivered to the stores of whatever city or empire they lived in and how much stuff that enabled them to get. So it was kind of like the first accounting system that enabled people to collateralize their production to get access to credit. Isn't that kind of amazing? It's crazy. And I, some of you may know this who are listening, but probably most of you don't. I actually studied ancient history for my undergrad. I, I majored in classics, uh, nothing to do with computer science, apropos of nothing that I do now. But I also recall in those classes, reading over old tablets and papyrus fragments and so on that were often accounts of you know these dealings between ancient romans saying oh quirinius the farmer over the road uh stopped being able to pay me back so i can't give him any more heads of cattle and this is again an example of an ancient credit system uh and in particular actually an example of an ancient basically credit Uh, credit scoring system where informally people would remember, oh, who's able to pay me back? Who, who had a good crop season? Who is doing well in, in trade and in the markets and who, who is likely to be able to give me money on the loans that I've made them uh, and repay me that premium. Now this also developed over the course of, of course, you know, the 14, 15, 1600s. Uh, for those of you who are interested, I really recommend reading Niall Ferguson's The Ascent of Money. Uh, also, David Graeber's Debt, The First 5,000 Years. That's kind of a cryptocurrency favorite that runs through a lot of this. My fascination has always been around credit scoring. And so I would call out one area that's touched upon only very lightly in either of those sources. But Around the development of how people would attest different credit scores to each other, that really developed during the, the years of the British Empire in the UK, when tailors suddenly didn't just have their own local network of consumers, of buyers, but suddenly they had people flooding in from all over the empire, coming into them, trying to get their suits hemmed or their hats made or whatever it was. And this network of tailors would all meet up at the pub in in London, in, in the financial district of London, in the city of London, uh, on rainy afternoons and go over their books and accounts and say, ah, oh, yeah, you know, that, that redheaded guy who came in last week, he came in to me too. He's not good for the money though. And they would all pool, pool some money together to make each other whole if they got ripped off and share information in this way about who was credit worthy and who was not. Wait, so the, there are lots of... That's the first socialized loss pool. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I mean, there were many um, earlier ones, but that's such an amazing story. 
<laughs> Do you want to talk for a second about what a socialized law school is, just just to make it clear? Sure. Well, maybe the most famous socialized loss pool in crypto, since after all, we do have some crypto listeners, is the BitMEX insurance fund. But many other examples, OKEx, for example, has a big socialized loss pool. But basically what it is, is anytime you have a credit market, a market where there are borrowers and lenders, and we haven't gotten into this yet, but there will also be secondary market where once credit's been issued, other people will trade those credit contracts on either side and buy that risk package it in different ways, etc. A lot of this is what led to the 2008 financial crisis. It was the repackaging of consumer loans, particularly mortgages or home loans, which tend to be really large, represent a material amount of someone's net worth, and typically is the largest form of debt a household has. But um, what's really interesting is typically when you have a marketplace, whether it's a marketplace for debt or for goods or anything else, if there are a number of players that all work together that know one another, and it's a market where sometimes there are losses. So in the example of the tailor, maybe sometimes there are customers that don't pay. In the example of an exchange, maybe sometimes it's a hack that happens. Maybe it's a systemic event that happens that causes a lot of loss. These loss pools are a number of players coming together, or in some cases, companies can do it internally, where they take some portion of their revenues or proceeds, or they ask uh, users sometimes to contribute a small fee per transaction or per year, maybe it's packaged into a membership, and contribute it to a pool of money that can be used anytime there is sort of a credit risk event that leads to loss for a member of the pool. So basically, you take money when times are good, you put them in a centralized pot or kind of a shared pot, and then you agree on the conditions upon which someone would be able to draw money from that pot. And that way, you're able to spread risk out Instead of having it be just one tailor who takes the risk, you have a number of tailors. Exactly. It's a form of insurance, basically. So indeed, this was this was one of the early versions of that, as well as one of the early versions of uh, of credit risk pricing and and a credit system in that way. Well, let me delve into consumer credit quickly in modern history. And this might help explain to some of our listeners why the fintech landscape looks the way it does and might help explain where we think the crypto credit landscape might be heading. You ready, Jill? Go for it. I'm no historian, um, but hopefully I will be as articulate as you in describing this. So consumer credit in the United States really wasn't very common before the 1900s. And the reason why is it was never legal for lenders to charge consumers interest rates that were high enough to make a profit. So since lending wasn't really profitable, it existed more as a community service type of business. So neighborhoods would maybe lend money to one another. Maybe you'd have informal lending structures between friends, but really only wealthy people could get access to personal loans without the risk of profit. And lending money to the middle and lower class wasn't really worth the risk. Secondly, um, there were loan sharks. So there were individuals who offered loans, but typically they were offered at a really high interest rate, which was illegal. So you might think of being a loan shark um, to be sort of as socially challenging as maybe being a drug dealer would be in modern times. It's illegal. You were doing something illegal. And the consequences were often pretty dire. So only people in really desperate financial need would go to a loan shark. And obviously, this made it socially very unacceptable for consumers to have loans. So that was the landscape. 
Then in the 1920s, all of a sudden, there was a massive boom in demand from households for manufactured products of high values. So if you think about the 1920s, you had Henry Ford, you had the production line, we saw a massive boom of industrialization. And what we saw as a result, you know, people go to Sears, they need to buy their first prototype of washing machine, they need to buy a Model T, nobody has a year's worth of income saved up. What we need is more lenient credit laws to create a mainstream profitable alternative to loan sharking and to enable the working class to buy all of these goods that were rolling off production lines. So we saw the introduction of a first type of credit called installment credit. And now there are a bunch of businesses that do this online. But installment credit is the idea that you would take something really large, uh, say, for example, the purchase of a car or a washing machine, and you would split it up into a fixed number of payments that had a little bit of a premium added on it. This is known as revolving credit, right? So every month, you know, you're going to pay off one twelfth of the washing machine you bought. And so as a result, credit became more socially acceptable and now legal. Then what happened after the 1920s? Jill, big financial event. The Great Depression massive, massively harmful. So Great Depression, we um, saw, you know, obviously, people were really hurting households didn't have capital, the American government tried everything they could to inject capital into the system. But what they realized is as part of the New Deal, which was this deal policymakers came up with, we needed to create more credit products to help Americans spend money and inject more capital into the into the economy. And so we saw the creation of the mortgage market. And the mortgage market is the home lending market. Jill? And you know, to go back here for a second to how we kicked off the episode, we were talking about the risk premium that people are willing to take. Now, the reason why the Great Depression caused this crunch in credit is because suddenly people didn't have jobs, people didn't have income, and that severely diminishes the appetite that people have to take on extra risk if they are lucky enough to have any cash on hand, which suddenly very few people did, which is the exact reason that we needed something like the New Deal to encourage people to start lending again. Exactly. And so we saw this product get created called a mortgage. And a mortgage was a way to finance Americans who may not have had much income to buy homes. And it also came with a set of policies that enabled commercial banks to get more comfortable giving consumer credit to the working class by allowing them to charge exorbitant rates. In fact, the government even went so far as to create two entities, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that were created in order to enable Americans to buy homes. And some of those mortgages were, in fact, government-sponsored. So this worked. We saw that we were able to spend our way out of the Great Depression. And then World War II came along. And World War II was a fascinating event because wars during these times were really, really uh, capital intensive, but also they resulted in a really high number of jobs. And so there was a lot of consumers during and after World War II who were able to borrow a lot of money, who had a lot of income, and most importantly, their incomes were steadily rising. So consumer debt after World War II started to skyrocket. We saw the move to the suburbs people living in larger and larger homes, people buying cars. The American lifestyle really got cemented during those years, and it was all built on borrowed money. And then more recently, we get to 2008, which is largely to blame 
uh, cre- credit rather is largely to blame for the crisis that we saw in 2008. And that's because of exactly what you just described, where suddenly borrowing has gotten out of control. Money has remained too easy uh, for people to be able to borrow, for people to be able to access in the face of what is actually happening in the real economy. And then compounding this, we've suddenly had the uh, pouring of money into derivative products that become more and more complex and that tend to obfuscate a lot of what's actually going on, how much leverage is actually in the system. So all of this has created today a perspective that credit, too much debt leads to bubbles, that this is inherently a bad thing. But as we see, if we look back through the history books, it's not always a bad thing. Credit is largely what got us out of the Great Depression. Credit has created new lines of business that wouldn't have been able to exist. Credit is also in large part responsible for the growth that's happened out of the Industrial Revolution. So here we are today, the good, the bad, and the ugly of consumer debt. But but let's go back to the industry I was in before I got involved in crypto. I was really involved in fintech, quote unquote. And fintech is this loose word that means a lot of different things. But a lot of the fintech companies that have gotten funded over the last 10 years, really, have been built around innovating the credit market. Some of the better names that have become unicorns include Lending Club, which was focused on consumer credit, SoFi, which was focused on student credit, and companies like Avant and others that enable uh, revolving credit payments. So I want to quickly talk about Lending Club and SoFi because I think they're two interesting analogies for what happens when you start to digitize and streamline credit in different ways. So Lending Club was an interesting business, which was focused on enabling individuals to get loans online. And really what they wanted to do is to create a marketplace that would enable peer-to-peer lending. The idea was, why would we let banks get um, all of the gains that are possible from consumer lending? Why don't we create a marketplace where we will take in applicants who want credit, we'll review their risk by having them complete a full profile, we'll do all of the sort of analysis work. And what we'll do is we'll grade the types of credit. So we'll grade these borrowers based on their risk profile. So they actually got number grades, um, like an A, a B, a C. And then consumers could go on and say, hey, I want to buy a grade A loan, a grade B loan, and a grade C loan. And I know on the grade A loan, because it's a lower risk loan, I'll make 5% on a grade B loan because it's a little bit more risk, I'll make X and so on and so forth. And Lending Club even went so far as to bundle together packages of loans that people could buy that gave them exposure to various risk profiles. Now, what happened is Lending Club initially was a great market. I used to lend money on Lending Club because the return was pretty good. I thought 7% was pretty nice. The risk felt small. But Lending Club eventually became an institutional market for credit. And now what it really is, is it's institutions buying this credit because there um, is so much opportunity there and 7 to 10% return looks really nice. But over time, more money that floods into these market, money becomes cheaper, returns go down, and it becomes really a self a sustaining cycle where more and more money flooding in brings down returns, more and more money comes in, brings down returns, risk goes up, you have more low quality borrowers coming on. And so Lending Club is a really interesting example of a business that attempted to create a peer-to-peer lending marketplace, but was sort of um, eaten alive by its own success. And what's interesting here is that 
something that started out as very disruptive as servicing kind of the little guys in the market, both on the lending side and on the borrowing side, teleologically, it seems like it just had to become this institutional marketplace. And so that's an interesting data point and potentially an interesting example for more of what we've seen more recently in the fintech lending space, as well as in the crypto lending space. Is this all just going to become institutional over some longer period of time? Well, let's talk about SoFi briefly then. So Lending Club's a great example of the consumer credit market. One really large market that's not talked about, but I think is really important, just like the housing market, which created really many of the conditions that led to 2008. I think student credit is an area that's really extremely underappreciated. There is a massive amount of student debt in the United States, and SoFi is one of the startups that attempted to get into the student credit market. So the idea behind SoFi was, instead of getting stuck as a student paying alone for the next 30 years, SoFi was going to give students a platform to more actively manage their loans. And what was cool about SoFi is you could sign up for it at any time. And even if you already had existing loans, you could sort of package them together. And SoFi would try to help you find a lower interest rate alternative and ways to repay your loans at a lower rate, maybe pay them more quickly, maybe pay them more slowly, depending on your financial condition. So again, what we have here is a marketplace that evolved in an attempt to be innovative. And one of the innovations around SoFi was actually affinity investing, where investors could um, provide capital to students that had attended the school they went to, right? So the idea is if you go to, say, MIT, I'll use that as an example, you have some money that you want to earn return on, you go on SoFi, you realize you can finance loans from other students that are going to that university. This is called affinity. Um, They're trying to create innovative structures to resolve some of the structural challenges around student credit. And in fact, one of the recent innovations here is Lambda School, which has gotten a lot of criticism, pardon, but Lambda School enables students to finance their education for one-year developer training program um, with their future income, which I think is an interesting model. But the student credit market is another one where what happened with SoFi and the hundreds of competitors that sprung up that all attempted to address the same market is you have fundamental inability to price risk effectively. You have a lot of really risky borrowers on the platform. And then you have a group of investors who are buying this risk who maybe aren't exactly suited to take on that type of risk. And as market conditions change, the ability of students to repay loans also changes. And as a result, you end up in a situation where suddenly that market could completely disintegrate or structurally start to look much riskier than it did when it first started. That's right. Yeah. And so here we have examples both in Lending Club and SoFi and more recently Lambda School. It's interesting you say that Lambda School has gotten a lot of criticism because most of what I've read has been overwhelmingly positive, although certainly it's a controversial approach. But here we have examples of players using old financial infrastructure to create basically new markets around lending. In the cryptocurrency world, which has recently become a buzz with new products and projects around lending, we have, in a way, the opposite, creating old world style lending products and projects, but with new financial infrastructure. And so just a few of the examples of these have been Dharma and its new product called Lever, Compound Finance, 
uh, DYDX and Marble, both of which enable shorts and margin trading, which are, again, types of lending. Uh, Lendroid, which I believe did an ICO, issued a token last year. And then even MakerDAO, which most people tend to just bucket in the category of stablecoin or stable token, it involves a lending mechanism within it. So I'd love to dive into all of those, but first I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch upon uh, crypto consumer credit products that have been around a bit longer. So for example, Ripio is one that I'm very familiar with and the RCN token, uh, BTC Jam, uh, BlockFi is another one that that's still around and is is functioning. Um, Meltem, I don't know if you want to comment at all on those, on I the good, do. bad, and the ugly there. I absolutely do. So I was an investor via digital currency group in both BTC Jam and Repio. Uh, BTC Jam, really interestingly, one of their uh, Series A investors was Foundation Capital, and Foundation Capital was one of the larger investors in Lending Club. And so what was interesting in talking to many of my friends who work at Foundation Capital is some of the parallels they saw between Lending Club and the idea of peer-to-peer lending markets. And then when Bitcoin came came out and when um, you know we started to see the need for credit during the first Bitcoin bubble in 2013, BTC Jam emerged. Um, and it was a company that was based in South America. So they started in a beachhead market, uh, Brazil, where lending, uh, consumer lending in particular, is really inefficient, particularly for people who aren't middle class or upper middle class and don't have bank accounts. It tends to still very much resemble that loan sharking type of environment where you have someone in the neighborhood who lends money. They have a gang of goons who maybe if you don't pay your loans will come to your door. Um, And it's it's still a very informal lending market. So the idea was with this new financial infrastructure, i.e. Bitcoin, um, and with, by the way, new data about consumers to price risk, and we'll get into that in a moment, um, that they could create a better lending model. Now, the fundamental issue with BTC Jam, and one of the things we talked about a lot and worked on a lot with um, Celso Pitta, who's the founder of the company, Company, was what happens to the collateral, i.e. the Bitcoin that's provided for the loan when the price of Bitcoin goes up drastically or down drastically. And I think these are some of the things in crypto that um, we are starting to see, particularly with people trying to borrow money against their crypto now, is what happens in periods of extreme market volatility. So BTC Jam was one, but I also want to touch on Repio because I feel like it learned from many of the lessons of BTC Jam. Repio is a company that came out of an art exchange in Argentina called Bitpagos. So Sebastian Serrano, who is a wonderful entrepreneur, uh, created one of the first Bitcoin exchanges in Latin America. It was called Bitpagos. It primarily served the Argentinian market to start. But what was cool about this is he actually um, had this idea to not just have an exchange, but to create an app that would facilitate payments. So as Bitpago started to grow, they started to gather all of this data about their consumers. And again, credit is really all about your ability to price risk effectively. And so the Repio idea was, can we use this information we have about our consumers, their transaction history, how regularly they're sending money to extend them small to medium sized loans? So the focus wasn't really big loans, but it was small to medium sized loans and just covering 
minimal cash shortfalls here and there. And then having some more data to be able to figure out, well, what's the likelihood of this person repaying their loan? Now, what's interesting about Repio is they did issue a token in 2017. I actually do own some of that token. Um, and it's, you know, hasn't performed that well. The token was supposed to be a tool to um, help lending happen within the network and to enable more peer-to-peer lending amongst Repio users. But I think in reality, this model is very difficult to implement successfully. And so there's now this, I think, interesting structure where you have Repio, the platform, there is this token in its network. And how does that all fit together? I'm not really sure. I think that is a question that will get figured out over time. If anyone can figure it out, it's Sebastian. But I think it's worth highlighting that all of those examples that you just named uh, were in some way centralized, right? They were depending on a centralized repository of data about the consumers, about the borrowers. Uh, They were depending on a centralized party to custody assets, whatever it might be, in some sense, they were centralized. Now, I would differentiate that from some of the more recent plays we've seen in the space, like MakerDAO, like Dharma, like Compound, like DYDX, etc., that are attempting basically decentralized lending. Now, I want to qualify that statement because I've used the D word. Okay, so the D word for those who are new listeners, decentralized is one of the words that grinds my gears to no end. And as we know from the numerous conversations that have gone on around the word decentralized, I think we really have to specify what that means. So Jill, when you say decentralized lending. In most of these cases around Dharma, Maker, et cetera, that I've just mentioned, what they're aiming for is to cut out a third-party trusted intermediary in the lending process. So here we're talking about peer-to-peer lending, not in the sense that Lending Club meant it, where Lending Club was still this third-party intermediary taking escrow, acting as uh, a grader of the borrowers, giving them credit scores, collecting data on their risk profiles, but rather a mechanism by which I can take out a loan from you, Meltem, digitally, online, with no one sitting in the middle, with no one taking custody of our funds, with no one collecting data on us. Now, this sounds like a dream scenario, both in the sense that it sounds, to me, a little bit unrealistic, um, but also in the sense that it sounds like a, a kind of ideal world in which we could have free credit flowing peer to peer between people. So I want to pause there and make an example um, because I think it might help differentiate. So remember the example we did earlier where I was borrowing money from you? Yes. Let's do that example, but in the world of these decentralized lending projects, protocols, tools. So I want to borrow money right, from you, Jill. Now, in most of these cases, I'm not giving you a business plan. I don't have a relationship with you. I'm not giving you a bunch of information or credit score. What I'm doing is I'm saying to you, hey, I have collateral. And typically, the form of collateral is another cryptocurrency. So let's say for the sake of this particular case that I have Bitcoin, right? And I want to borrow money against my Bitcoin. I don't want to sell my Bitcoin because I believe it will go up in value. So I come to you and I say, what do I do? I go to, I don't even come to you. I go to this marketplace and I say, I have five Bitcoin that I want to post as collateral. What can I borrow? That's right. And then I, as the lender, will also be live on this market and I will have 
money uh, that I am willing to put up for that collateral that you're getting. And usually, again, my money is also in the form of a cryptocurrency. It might just be in the form of another cryptocurrency that you need. So let's say you have Bitcoin, but you want ETH so that you can go out and play with all of the dApps in the ETH ecosystem. You might put up some Bitcoin and I'm willing to give you a certain amount of ETH, a certain ratio of ETH per every Bitcoin that you put up. Now, because I don't know anything about you because you haven't given me a business plan, certainly, but maybe you haven't even given me your name. Maybe you haven't even given me other crypto addresses that you have that I could use to attest whether or not you're good for the money. I certainly don't know that you're Meltem Demirer's famous crypto investor and thought leader extraordinaire. I might ask you to put up more Bitcoin than I'm willing to loan you an ETH in terms of dollar amount. So you would be over collateralizing what you're what you're getting from me. Um, and that's a way for me to mitigate my risk in this system. But so one of the big problems but- that we're getting at here is the issue that there's no reputation. There's no reputation system in a decentralized network if you don't have a third party involved. There is no lending club. There is no Moody's or S&P or TransUnion or Equifax gathering information on people saying, okay, here's who's credit worthy. Here's who has money. Here's how much income Meltem is making. Here's the other assets that she has that you could have claim to. None of that is going on here. And so there's this issue of how can I price your credit score? And the reality is it's very, very difficult, if not impossible. No one has solved this yet. I think that this is one of the great kind of outstanding mysteries of of what the DeFi world can and will look like someday. Um, But I, I... The reality is there's no good way to do it today. And so what people are doing is they're using these mechanisms of over collateralization instead. So Jill, here's the issue I have when we're talking about decentralized credit markets. Really, in my view, what we mean when we say decentralized is that instead of having a central entity that's playing matchmaker between borrowers and sellers and coordinating information and pricing and all of this, we're we're basically creating price discovery in a trust minimum way. And what's really interesting to me here is as someone, for example, who may have Bitcoin and not want to sell my Bitcoin, but maybe, you know, I have a tax bill that I need to pay in cash and I need access to USD. Maybe that's a situation where I'd be willing to uh, give up, collateralize my Bitcoin. So put my Bitcoin in an escrow account somewhere where if I default on the loan, it goes to the person who gave me, let's say the Ether, or maybe it's the DAI, um, which is a stable coin that I am using to do whatever I need to do with cash. Um, what the fundamental issue to me is, is what happens in an environment where prices suddenly become more volatile, but more importantly, in an environment where we see a rapid decoupling of asset prices. So historically, Bitcoin and Ether have moved, and all of the assets in the crypto market, frankly, have moved in tandem. So if the price of Bitcoin or Ether, which tend to be the core currencies supporting the market, go up, as a result, there is sort of a general rising of other crypto asset prices because people are moving into and out of them in these core assets. So what happens in an environment where all of a sudden the price of crypto goes up, Bitcoin, pardon, goes up rapidly or falls rapidly, 
and the price of Ether does not follow. Then you get a system where all of a sudden you get a bunch of collateral calls, right? Yes. And so what happens then is all of a sudden you have all of these people who lent out money, who have claim to this collateralized asset, let's say it's Bitcoin, and they now have a bunch of Bitcoin and their loan's not getting paid back. What happens to the price of Bitcoin in that market? Do you all of a sudden have a liquidity crunch where all of these people who got uh, liquidated in their loans, who had their positions, their collateral called, do these people then start selling en masse? Now, maybe with more liquid assets like Bitcoin and others, it doesn't matter. But I want to talk briefly about um, this compound contract out there with a bunch of dye in it. So do you want to quickly describe that situation? Uh, so I want to go back actually first, just to make this all a bit more concrete for listeners who maybe haven't played around with Compound or Maker or Dharma or whatever it is yet, because it's taken me a little while to to wrap my head around this. Even as someone who worked for years in the credit markets, I was initially confused as to how over collateralization could lead to more leverage in the system, could lead to borrowed money, because the whole idea is that you're tying up your assets, Right. Like if you're over collateralizing, then in some sense, you're actually removing money from the system. But in fact, you aren't. And here's how is it's a little bit like taking out a home equity loan. So if I have a hypothetical $1 million house, the bank might let me take out a 500k line of credit on it. So I now have the $1 million house, but that's, again, kind of in the hands of the bank because it's collateralizing this 500K loan. Now I might take that 500K loan and go use that as my down payment on another house in the same neighborhood. Uh, So now I have a mortgage on that house, the second house that I've bought, as well as the initial exposure to the $1 million house that I've used as collateral. Now, let's say my neighborhood suddenly has a spike in crime or an earthquake happens for whatever reason, black swan event, the price of the houses in the neighborhood goes down dramatically. I'm now suddenly overexposed to the housing market because not only do I have the $1 million house that is acting as collateral, but I also have this 500K of leveraged exposure to another house in the same neighborhood. And suddenly... I'm in a really bad position. Now, this is a lot like what is going on with, let's take Maker as an example, where I might tie up some Ethereum into a Maker contract. Let's say I tie up a million dollars worth of ETH. I might be able to get 500K worth of the DAI stablecoin back out of that. I can then go use that 500K worth of DAI to go buy more ETH. Great, suddenly I have $1.5 million worth of ETH exposure when I started with only $1 million. That $500K, it hasn't come out of thin air because the ETH is over collateralizing the loan, but I've still introduced leverage into the system. Now, I think what you're getting at, Meltem, is what if the price of Ethereum suddenly drops below a certain level? Well, the smart contract will either force me to lock up more ETH there uh, in order to keep the collateral of the die position that I've taken out that 500 K worth of die in order to keep that solvent or else the maker system will put my ETH, the collateral up for auction and start selling it off. Now the real risk comes in here when the liquidation 
happens too quickly. When the price of ETH drops quickly enough that there is no good bid in the market to be able to handle uh, the incoming loans that are being sold off. So this is, again, a little bit like if I had leveraged exposure to a given neighborhood of houses uh, and suddenly a a black swan event happened and I wasn't able to sell those houses off quickly enough to get cash to repay the bank. So, and and this is where I think um, what becomes interesting in these systems and particularly because many of these systems are built on top of Ethereum and they're relying on the same assets is what is the fluidity of the collateral, right? And in reality, the collateral um, in these systems, and particularly as you get start getting layers of loans on loans on loans on loans, <laughs> uh, my question is, can you make collateral that um, is liquid enough, that flows freely enough, and are crypto markets sufficiently deep enough to be resilient in the face of these flash events, these systemic events that cause things to have an impact on all of these loans or credit contracts that got priced at around the same time and at around the same rates, right? This to me is the interesting question, particularly when you start thinking about broad systems as opposed to just isolated individual systems. That's right. And things start to get really distorted when you have suddenly 2.5% of all outstanding ETH locked up in Maker, or you have 10% of all outstanding Augur rep token locked up in Compound. And suddenly you're dealing with something that I would argue is much more akin actually to my housing example, where suddenly the assets aren't that liquid, where the market, the bottom can drop out of the market than if you're dealing with something that is very liquid, like in the old world, say treasury bonds, or even gold, if you were to use that as collateral, there's a lot more liquidity there. And there's a lot more stability in those markets. And again, I think the point of this conversation and our interest in credit, I find this whole market fascinating. I'll confess, I don't really use these products myself, I would rather not give up my crypto, um, regardless of how well collateralized a position is, because there's certain positions that I want to hold and there are certain positions that I don't. But I think in these situations where, let's say, for example, 10% of the rep token, right, of the circulating supply of Augur's token is locked up in one compound contract. Let's say that that contract gets liquidated, right? Let's say that the price of Augur drops enough that the contract gets liquidated or they have to post more collateral to secure the contract, but it gets liquidated. All of a sudden, you have a massive amount of this token that is now in the hands of someone who gave up another asset for that token and is likely going to want to liquidate it. But the daily volume in this the market for this token is one one hundredth or one one thousandth of the position of this liquidated contract. So my question is, typically in markets when this happens, look at the mortgage crisis, there's a lender of last resort, right, that will step in and they'll soak up some of the excess sell pressure in the market. They'll buy these things to try to stabilize the price from falling like 
a knife. (laughs) And my question is, who in the crypto market is going to catch these falling knives? Because these systemic events will happen. We will see them, whether they're isolated to one asset or whether they're more broad scale and impact a whole group of assets, but we will see it happen. And so you, Jill, and I, I know have had some conversations about lenders of last resort. Who is going to be the person that steps in and keeps events like this from dragging something all the way to zero? It's going to be the biggest bag holders, if you ask me. It's those with the most to lose. And these markets are still small enough where it's feasible that you could have funds, crypto hedge funds, VCs, even individual investors stepping in to stabilize, to catch that falling knife, to stabilize whatever market it is that they have the vested interest in. But it's also equally probable to me that some of these markets, that many of these markets may not have anyone with sufficient incentive to step in and do that, uh, which becomes you know, a very scary scenario. Fortunately, there's not enough leverage in any of these systems, I think, to cause widespread or lasting damage. But it's not good nonetheless. Well, when you say there is enough collateral or enough capital in these systems to cause damage, I would caveat that by saying um, yet on the end of that sentence. There is not enough capital in these systems yet. But just scrolling through the 10,000 tabs I have open because I have an addiction to uh, browser tabs that cannot be cured. like 10 of the browser tabs I have open are various medium thought leadership posts on open finance and collateral and lending. We're seeing more and more projects shipping, right, and launching their solution. And we're also seeing an environment where a lot of people expected a crypto price recovery. We're not seeing. They're paying their living expenses in USD. So I think we may see more demand for these things. And so I do worry that in absence of of testing, um, what will be the ultimate test of some of these things is one of these catastrophic events. And I'm not sure that the that certain assets um, will be able to recover. Indeed. Yeah. And so I think that this is an important area to keep an eye on. I think that it's important that we continue to think about ways for us to develop credit markets within cryptocurrency. I, for one, actually believe that credit is going to be an integral part of whatever cryptocurrency applications and whatever cryptocurrency markets develop over the long term. But I'm not sure that they involve over-collateralization. I'm not sure that they involve uh, basically the lack of centralized third parties altogether that we're seeing being attempted. I I struggle to to envision a future in which we don't have any means of information aggregation, data sharing, uh, credit scoring, and all of these integral things that have been part of the credit system throughout human history. So hold on, Jill. I want to quickly talk about um, Uniswap. I don't know if you've looked at Uniswap I yet. I have, of course, but there, yeah. yeah. Okay. There is this idea that people have um, that not only are we going to have people post their collateral in crypto, now because of tools like Uniswap, while these assets are held as collateral, they can actually be actively traded. So you're not only returning... Um, fees via the collateral or sorry, providing um, collateral, but you can actually also trade them and earn fees in different ways. So we're like layering 
risk on risk on risk on credit on credit on credit across market across market across market my head starts to spin um it's going to be a really interesting 2019 um and i think there are a lot of things that can definitely go wrong that will most certainly go wrong and i think be really fascinating in shaping the future of what crypto credit markets look like agreed and for more on uniswap and uh, as he calls it, the superfluid collateral in the DeFi or open finance system. I would recommend reading Dan Elitzer, our friend Dan's post on on exactly this. It's uh, it's published on Medium under the title "Superfluid Collateral." Um, we'll post it in the, in the show notes, of course. Here, but there's a lot of scary things like this to keep an eye on. It's worth looking back at lessons from finance going back through history, as always. Uh, I rewatched The Big Short recently, actually, as I was preparing for this episode and thinking about all of these issues. <laughs> I think that there are a lot of big $10 words that get thrown around in finance, like rehypothecation, that crypto builders would do well to learn about and learn the history of. And I think in that regard, we'll also add to the show notes some of Caitlin Long's writing, pardon, on rehypothecation and what it could mean for Bitcoin in particular, but you could easily extend this to other markets. And we'll have a number of other great sources, as well as some of the history of credit and some of these products we talked today posted there. But taking all of this, Jill, the magical world of crypto collateral, crypto lending, and crypto open, decentralized, mega fluid finance. I think I did like 10 buzzwords there. Do I get a prize? You win bingo for the day. You win buzzword bingo. Um, Let's quickly talk about things that we are excited to see in the future. I know you and I both coming from the world of credit. um, One of my passions has always been risk and pricing risk and how to do that effectively. I know you've been doing a lot of thinking around credit scoring, but let's maybe do some pontification, one of our favorite things about what future products in the world of blockchain based credit markets could look like. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm really excited about the idea of credit scoring within crypto markets. Basically, if you look at credit scoring today, it falls into a few categories of how it happens. It's either a singular trusted third party. It's a small oligopoly of usually about three trusted parties who collect data and then run it through their meat grinder algorithm and stamp a score on whoever the borrower is. So in Corporate credit markets, this tends to be S&P, Moody's, and Fitch. In consumer credit markets, it tends to be, at least in the United States, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. It would be nice to start to think about ways of uh, mechanisms of attestation of new forms of credit rating systems, credit scoring systems that might be able to emerge without having to have those central points of failure. Now, these don't necessarily depend on blockchains. What I'm really describing is more of a web of trust model. I wrote more about this almost a year ago, actually, uh, in an article titled The Mutual Communication Society. Again, this goes back to the days of yore in, in England when people would be collecting together in pubs uh, to, to share information and create basically a networked, de- more decentralized 
form of credit scoring. I would be really excited to see anyone working on those types of issues. Mm -hmm. And I think on my end, as I think about risk models, one of the things I'm interested in is just data transparency generally. Um, For example, you know, if you are someone who's looking at the market, looking at an asset like Rep, for example, um, how do you enable someone who's looking at that market to see all of the different places where this asset has been collateralized as leverage, the different places where it's locked up? And I think Masari is one of the companies that has started to work on creating information transparency, albeit in a very different way. They're starting at a very basic point, just trying to curate a basic set of information about all of these different crypto assets um, and all of their different constructions and some of the fundamental information around these protocols. But I do think um, as these credit markets expand, as we see more crypto collateral posted in these contracts and reutilized in different ways and um, all of this, it will be interesting to see how we track and trace that information, particularly because so many of the people who are participating in these markets are speculative investors and fund managers and large crypto fund basically all of them are right basically i mean we call it consumer credit but it's all just speculative leverage this is what i wanted we didn't get to talk about this but i think that's the final point that's really important i would love to see and again because these markets are decentralized it's impossible to gather data around usage but um i would love to see usage statistics or even informal polling on who the people are that are using these contracts clearly the person who collateralized 10 percent of circulating rep supply or the augers token um, as collateral in a compound contract is a large investor or one of the founders. There is no way you have that much of an asset as just a casual consumer. So then my question becomes, if it's investors who are leveraging these contracts and they're doing it to lock up a position they don't want to liquidate to be able to buy more assets to trade, then that starts to become really, really interesting from a data gathering perspective, but really also interesting from a game theoretical perspective if you're another investor in the market, right? So to me, um, a lot of these contracts, a lot of this collateral that's floating around, I want to have more information so that I can make better decisions around what to do with my assets and my exposure as a result of all of this liquidity risk that may be present in these assets that I otherwise would just have no information about. That's right. It brings me back to, again, the days when I worked on the trading desk, trading both bonds and credit default swaps, which are derivatives of bonds. And we would have on open on two or three out of the eight or nine screens that we'd have in front of us, just the risk systems that showed what exposure we had and what the sort of second order effects of that exposure were. So you could run scenario analyses of if this company defaults or if this position gets liquidated, how does that ripple out across the market? And that's something that despite all of the transparency, despite all of the auditability of what goes on on blockchains, we've yet to develop, but I'm excited to see more of that coming. So this is what I think about as well. Um, I wasn't pricing sovereign debt risk. I was pricing um, intercompany finance credit risk. ExxonMobil had 14,000 affiliates and we extended credit of various forms to them and they deposited capital in different ways. So there were all of these interesting um, interrelated financial relationships, but they were all predicated on the price of oil 
and derivatives of oil that could be created through refining. Um, and so what was really interesting is just like you, I constantly had a screen open that was looking at the risk of these credit positions and how changes in other asset prices could change the risk of the overall loan book. And as someone who's participating in these markets, it's very difficult for me to feel comfortable taking a position if I don't know who the other borrowers are and who the lenders are and what the state of those markets is. Again, one of the biggest things you're always thinking about is, well, who are the other people who are exposed to this type of risk and how are they going to behave in these different scenarios? And so this information challenge that comes from a result of decentralizing um, this relationship via uh, a protocol or a network is so fascinating to me. And it'll be a really interesting experiment. Can you have robust, healthy credit markets without intermediaries, without lenders of last resort, without governments, um, without people who are willing to stabilize the system and without the information needed to do so effectively? I don't. Exactly. The information sharing is such a critical piece of that. And what you just said reminds me of in the sovereign markets, we would have to be really careful about who we were facing on a given trade. Because if we were going short, say, Brazil credit risk as a country, but we were facing a Brazilian bank on that trade, that was a huge no-no because we would have to consider, well, okay, even if we're right on this trade, let's say the country of Brazil defaults, there's some huge black swan event that gets us a huge payoff on this short Brazil position, if we're facing a Brazilian bank on that trade, they might not be able to pay us what what they owe to us on that trade because they are in Brazil, they're exposed to whatever black swan event has taken the country out, right? And so to that point, it's so critical that we have the mature infrastructure and the mature information markets in place before we get over our skis on injecting too much leverage into this system. So this is why I'm a little bit skeptical that we'll ever be able to have fully, truly decentralized peer-to-peer, no third parties in credit markets. But uh, you know, that doesn't make me any less excited about about a lot of the innovation that we're seeing in this space, even if it is currently over collateralized and even if it is currently perhaps a little bit questionable in terms of the compounded risk that it's inserting into it. If nothing else, it will be fun to sit back, kick up my feet, have a cup of tea, and watch these things play out over their natural course. If there's <laughs> anything I take away from our talk, though, it's that money really truly does make the world go round. And an important part of money is credit. Credit is a part of any functioning market. Even though crypto markets began without credit. Um, Credit, in my view, will very quickly become one of the largest sectors of the crypto market, just like it has in every other market. Crypto credit now is still small. It's still highly centralized via OTC desks, broker dealers, lending firms, and other entities that are coordinating buy and sell that have credit scoring models. But this idea that you could decentralize credit markets, the fact that people have put 
hundreds of millions of dollars of capital into it is really fascinating. And I think it will be a really interesting experiment to see what the limits of credit are, if there are any. And if there is truly a world that's possible, where it isn't always the big bad boys with the biggest, deepest pockets and the biggest appetite for risk, who are going to come in and dominate those markets. We'll see. You know, we like to say though, right? DeFi, just like the old FI. (laughs) That's very true. Um, It is scary how similarly these narratives are starting um, to play out. And some of the things that people say to me about crypto credit, I'm like, wow, are you sure you don't work at a bank? So (laughs) maybe that's just the way it's going to be. We shall see. Anyway, thanks for tuning in this week. We covered a lot here on crypto credit. By all means, leave us messages on Twitter, on the Medium posts that we have of the show notes with questions, comments, thoughts. If we've missed anything, we get a lot of flack for not covering every single project that's doing work on these topics. We do our best. It's not because we don't have investments or exposure to other projects in these spaces. Um, It's not because we are not a fan of your project. But it's just because we only have a limited amount of time here. So by all means, post, send us a note, educate us, and we'll keep the conversation going until next time. Let's go grind some gears. Hi, everyone. Meltem and Jill here. To find more episodes of What Grinds My Gears, go to grindmygears.co. Episodes go live every Tuesday morning, and you can find the links to the materials we reference in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to What Grinds My Gears so that more people can find this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.